welcome to Meet the PAs podcast. Hear the experiences of seasoned PAs, up and coming development of policy from industry leaders, and the exploration of those new to the career. Interviews done with a Canadian twist at Maple Syrup. Today, we are here with Sahand, our new Ontario Chapter Vice President. Welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, and again, I, I, I just want to say I'm very proud to see that you guys have started this podcast and I've listened to the first couple of episodes and I'm very, very impressed and I'm excited to hear more. Well, thank you thank so much. You. We appreciate the, it's, it has been some effort, so we appreciate it. Yes, a labor of love. <laughs> yeah. So let's sure. start out. Uh, obviously, there's two pieces to this interview. Uh, questions for you as a practicing PA, yeah. and then also questions regarding your new role as VP. But let's start with the, the questions about a practicing PA. What is your current role? Where are you at? And, and bring us up to speed with that. Okay, so uh, I am currently a PA working in the University Health Network. Uh, that is comprised of a group of four different hospitals. So that's Toronto General, Toronto Western Hospital, uh, both of which are downtown with Princess Margaret, uh, as well as Toronto Rehab. Uh, I work in the emergency department there. I actually initially, when I was hired, was hired through the Career Start program at the Toronto Western Hospital, where the volumes in the emergency department are the highest. Uh, and so they hired me on there after about a year or so. Uh, at both sites, we actually had nurse practitioners and when there was some issues with coverage, you know, NPs on vacation or uh, having to go to conferences and other things, uh, some of the docs said, well, you know, instead of being at the Western where there was NP coverage, can you come over to the general as well? And then after that, the discussion started about having me go to both sites mm-hmm. uh, to, to complement the volume at both sites, because also over the last couple of years with the condo boom and whatnot in downtown Toronto, uh, they needed help at the general as well. Uh, and so now I work at both sites. Uh, initially, for the first year and a half, it was just me. We then expanded out to hire a second PA. Uh, and actually, over the last, I think, eight months, we uh, have hired on another two PAs as well. And all of us rotate between both sites, which is very similar to what our physicians do there as well. That's really cool that there's four PAs downtown. I, can, I mean, there's more than that downtown, but in that area, it's really good. Yeah, and I mean, it's, I think... Uh, in terms of emergency departments, UHN downtown was one of the first to adopt the, the PA role. Definitely Sunnybrook was kind of the trailblazer in Emerge <laughs> right. and yeah. the GTA. Uh, however, UHN kind of took, I think, a leap of faith when they when they applied to get PAs. And now, actually, you're seeing that trend take over in other places. I think there's some consideration in other surrounding hospitals. Sick Kids recently hired some PAs in their yeah, pediatric emergency big... departments big step for PAs in Ontario I think mm-hmm. yeah and and so uh, I think hopefully as time goes on if we continue to trailblaze we'll see more of that happening in, in the downtown uh, core so what made you want to become a PA how did you get here yeah so it's kind of a interesting question I so my PA journey was kind of abrupt uh, in the sense that uh, I actually had no idea about PAs growing up, uh, as most of us in Canada didn't. Uh, and so when I was actually in, in high school applying to university, 
I really thought that I was going to do pharmacy. So that made me pursue a career in uh, biochemistry. So I applied to biochemistry at the University of Waterloo, went there uh, for, for my undergraduate studies. And when it came time to apply to graduate schools, I uh, was volunteering at a pharmacy and just kind of decided that it wasn't what I envisioned it to be. I volunteered in a few different settings and then I started kind of having a quarter life crisis because I didn't <laughs> know what I was going to do. I always knew I wanted to do something in the medical sciences, uh, but I wanted something with a good amount of patient interaction. And so I kind of started to scramble. I never really wanted to go the medical route. It wasn't something that always emanated with me. I and I felt that it was always something that you needed to be extremely passionate about. And the fact that I wasn't extremely mm -hmm. passionate about going to medical school, I felt like it wasn't the right thing for me. Uh, and also the length of time wasn't something so that appealed time. to me. So much time. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, again, a common feeling amongst a lot of people who apply to, to the PA program. Uh, so what I did is I, I started looking like, you know, short medical probes and, you know, fast-tracked medical school. Like, I was like, there must be some other way to get a medical education and do similar things, but not do the full, you know, 12 years of education that it takes to become a doctor. Uh, so then I ran into that, you know, famous article, I think it's on Forbes or whatever it is with, you know, the top uh, professions yeah. in the US yes. and it was physician assistant. And so I thought, what the hell is a physician assistant? <laughs> and so then I read the article and I thought, wow, like this is exactly what I'm looking for. You yeah. do almost, Everything that a physician does, you get paid well. And so I started looking into the programs. I saw every article that I read was about programs in the United States. So then I thought, oh, no, you know, this is probably like the doctor of osteopathy programs where they're yeah. only offered in the States and not in Canada. Right. And so I literally Googled Canadian PA programs and it said McMaster University opens first PA program <laughs> in Canada and then I started freaking out like I started going crazy this is after maybe I don't know three three or so weeks of Searching. doing research and whatever so I really had become I, I'd fallen in love with the profession and so I was super excited uh, the only thing I really didn't like was the name, to be mm -hmm. honest. And even when I spoke to my parents about it, I, I have a very open relationship with them. They were kind of like, oh, but you, you want to be an assistant, like physician mm. assistant? And I was like, no, no, it's not like that. Like, yeah. And I showed them the articles. They read the articles. And my dad was like, no, this sounds very legitimate. And so uh, then I started researching a little bit more into the McMaster programs and reading, you know, the few articles that were out at that time, because this is now, I think, 20, 2011, 2012. Uh, and so, you know, they said it's a growing profession in Ontario. There's a pilot project. At that time, there were some articles that showed that there were jobs and that it was probably going to, it looked as though it, there was going to be some success with, with the profession. Uh, and also it really appealed to me the fact that you could pioneer a profession, right? Because, mm. you know, they, they did mention, you know, this is a new profession. A lot of the grads that are going in are trailblazers. They, they're, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty, but they also get to define the role and what it is the PAs do, which also really appealed to me. I thought, you know, if you go the medical route or, you know, you join an established profession, sure, there's probably a little bit more security, but at least with the PA program here, uh, you can be a part of, a movement that yeah. doesn't exist. Yeah, right. Exactly. It's a crazy opportunity that way. Yeah, and mm -hmm. and so I uh, 
I took a leap of faith and I applied to the McMaster program because that's the only one I could apply to at that time. Right. Got in and uh, yeah, it's all history. Here I am now. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's a really interesting story. I always find it fascinating how people hear about it because everybody has their different way that they ended up and ended up going to PA school. So you obviously are working with medical directives right now in Ontario. And uh, so talk about your directives. How often are they reviewed, ideally, and then practically, as those are different? And how how easy is it to get the hospital board on on board with your medical directives, especially considering you have more than one hospital involved with them? Mm-hmm. Um, and presumably, yes, it's a big emerge, multiple supervising Multiple super, supervising yeah. physicians, yeah. Um, so I guess the easiest way to think about it for us, I guess department-wise, is that it's actually not difficult at all. So we have at UHN between two sites, and again, we all rotate between the two sites, but that means we need more staff. In terms of physician staff, we have around, I think now we're hitting around 85 physicians. Wow. Oh my gosh. Yes. Uh, And I work with probably, I would say, 90% of them. Mm. There's certain physicians who I work with very rarely because there's groups of docs who like to do night shifts only, uh, and I don't work nights. Uh, if I'm there on an evening shift a bit later, I might run into them, but I don't usually work with them. Uh, although sometimes when they pick up day shifts, I may on the rare occasion, you know, review a few cases with them. And so from that perspective, it's not difficult in that the directives are essentially done by myself with in conjunction with the chief of the department. And then they send it out to the group and ask, you know, can somebody review it? Can everyone review it if they can, ideally? Not sure how many people actually review it. And if they have any concerns, they can share their concerns and we can make the edits based on their concerns. And then once that's ready, we essentially, the chief will sign on behalf of all of the physicians. Okay. That's really interesting. Yeah. One physician to sign. That's nice, actually. Yeah. Yeah. And and so he gives kind of the stamp of approval. They, you know, to legitimize it, they say we've shared it with the group. We've asked for feedback. We've received feedback and we've taken it into consideration and uh, that way we're kind of covered to say everyone is aware and everyone agrees. Uh, and for the most part in our group, I think uh, the, the understanding of the PA role is uh, quite good. You know, mm-hmm. there's some groups who don't really understand what I think in Canada, especially what PAs do and, you know, what we're capable of. But I think that the UHN group has a great vision for PAs and they allow us to have a very broad scope of practice. And they see that, you know, we can really do anything that our docs do so long as they train us to do it and allow us to do it, which is, which is wonderful. And also I think that's complemented by the fact that we're a teaching hospital, right? And so we have people who are already interested in teaching. And so not only do they teach the residents, but they also teach us. Right. And they're used to delegating. Exactly. They're they're used used to to delegating. delegating. And so then all the PAs uh, at UHN are on the same medical directive. Nobody has different ones. So, no, it's departmental. Okay. And so that's when it becomes a little bit more complicated. What we do to approve our medical directives, it, it's kind of a crapshoot uh, when it goes to the hospital uh, <laughs> board, admin yeah. and the hospital board. Again, I should say that my opinions are strictly my, <laughs> my own opinions. Not the <laughs> they do not represent the opinions of the organizations <laughs> I work for or uh, the opinions of, you know, Kappa by any means. This is all just me. Um, so I should probably say that. At some point. But so what, once it goes to the, the hospital board, it, it becomes a little bit tricky in that 
it always goes to MAC, which is the Medical Affairs Committee. Yeah. Uh, first, I think it actually goes to the Clinical Oversight Committee, who then sends it to the Medical Affairs Committee. So there's a few committees that will review these. And depending on the stakeholders that are at the meeting, sometimes I think there's pharmacists, nurses, nurse practitioners who review it and decide, you know, is this okay or not okay? The first group of PAs, I think, that had medical directives approved at our hospital were the general surgery PAs. And, or actually, I think it might have been neurosurge. Uh, and so they had, I think, a very tough time because these committees are not familiar with medical right. directives that apply to PAs, right? Yeah. They're used to nursing medical directives, which aren't nearly as uh, all-encompassing as ours. Because exactly. exactly. Ours are quite broad because they need to cover our entire scope of practice mm-hmm. since we're not regulated. And so I think it's a huge kind of smack in the face for them because they say, oh my God, this is a you know 200-page document of things. And then because they're not familiar with the PA role, you get certain professionals who may question a lot of the things that are on the directives, which becomes a problem because they don't really know what it is that you do. Right. And so you then it becomes frustrating because then you say, well, you know, I created these directives in conjunction with my supervisors and we feel that I'm able to do it. But then you might get roadblocks uh, your way because the people who don't know what you do are the people who say, well, I don't think actually this is in your scope. Yeah. And so then you're arguing, you know, what your scope is with people who don't, don't know. know what yeah. it is. There's a big education piece there. and Yeah. And yeah. so overall, it actually worked out. So they eventually approved the neurosurgery directives. They approved our general surgery directives with some caveats. Uh, for whatever reason, our, uh, I guess, our the pharmacy group as well as the antibiotic stewardship group in our hospital just didn't feel that PAs should be prescribing antibiotics <laughs> at that time. And wow. so narcotics are okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that rose seven. Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, I, I mean, n- narcotics actually aren't on there either for yeah. us. Um, but yeah, for whatever reason, antibiotics also, there was this huge uproar. Uh, and so those two groups, I don't think maybe they it might've changed now, but to my knowledge, I don't think have had antibiotics on their directives. Now, what was sort of interesting... A, it's such a like, basic as a item. surgeon, like, those are the two and things patient. you prescribe. ANSEF. Right. And narcotics. Yeah. That, I yes. mean, every patient. That's, yeah. a, that's really... That has to be very, very frustrating. Yeah. But again, I think in a teaching hospital, they're a bit more fortunate in that there's residents there or whatever yeah. who can just co-sign quickly mm-hmm. and, and get the yeah. orders through. Uh, so then for me, I actually was fortunate to have Sunnybrook's help with our directives um, and so I, I messaged Zlata from Sunnybrook as well as Paul, mm-hmm. Dr. Paul Hawkins, who's yes. kind of pioneered the yeah. profession in, in their group. And uh, they actually shared the directives from Sunnybrook with our group. Uh, and so I essentially modeled our directives off of theirs. Now, each hospital has their own kind of, I guess, framework in terms of how they want the directives created. Yeah. And so I essentially took the Sunnybrook framework and tried to, you know, integrate it into the UHN framework, uh, which worked relatively well. And amazingly enough, despite having antibiotics, I actually didn't get any questions about our directives in Emerge. And and so uh, it actually, it all got approved. It went through COC, it went through MAC. There weren't any questions asked. I don't know how much of that was um, as a result of our, our chief's work because I know he's at these meetings, so I don't know how much, you know, pushing and uh, advocating he had to do. He may have had to do a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't hear about it, uh, but our directives got approved, and I would say that they're quite broad. So 
you as know, they need to be in Emerge. Exactly. You know, what the hospitals used to in terms of nursing directives is very specific criteria. And that's how the framework that they lay out for us is, is, is based. So, Which is why you have a 200-page document. Exactly. <laughs> so they say, you know, this is the medication. These are the indications. These are the contraindications. And then, you know, other things to consider. Uh, and so it's a problem because a lot of the times in emergency medicine, we don't have clear diagnoses. We don't have indications for the medications we give. We treat based on symptoms. Mm -hmm. And so... And, yeah, what we think is going on. Exactly. And so how can I really say, you know, this is because the person has, you know, an MI. I don't know until I get the test results. So I'm going to treat them as such uh, in the meantime. And so that's what our directives are based on. They're very broad. They're, you know, we we kind of group them based on, let's say, allergy therapy or, uh, you know... Chest pain. Ch- chest pain shortness or of shortness of breath. Abdominal pain. Exactly. Like, it's yeah. very broad. Okay. Um, which is great. Good. Yeah, you. It, it's much better for everybody involved. Yeah. Excellent. Uh, and then... What else with the directives? I don't. Yeah, I think I think that's about it. That's kind of the main main kind of hurdles that we had to face with regards to the medical directives. What's your experience been like working with so many supervising physicians? Uh, you know what? It's been great. I uh, <laughs> I have to say, um, I was a little bit worried at first, but the setup that we have at UHN is is pretty unique in that we have multiple shifts at the same time, and we have different areas of the department that those shifts cover in terms of our docs. And so what happens there is that we'll have a physician, for example, in the fast track area, a physician on the main side, which Mm -hmm. is our subacute acute area. And then we have a certain group of physicians who have float shifts where they go to fast track for a portion and then they can come over to the acute side if they need to or vice versa. And so what we do as PAs, initially when we were hired, they wanted us to focus on fast track at the Western. The majority of the volume at Toronto Western goes through the fast track area. So I'd say maybe 80, 85% of our patients actually flow through fast track. It's actually not a fast track. I would say it's more of a subacute in that our acute beds are always blocked with admitted patients. Mm. And so the only place to see patients is fast track. fast track. And then once the patient is deemed to have an MI or they're sick or or whatever, then they need a monitor. Then we try to figure something out to put them into the subacute acute okay. side a lot of the time. Uh, and so... They wanted us to function in fast track. I was a bit, bit worried because I didn't want to only be seeing CTAS 4s and 5s, yes. uh, which isn't the case really in fast track at the Western. Uh, and so what I ended up kind of bargaining in in the earlier six months of my career was that, you know, why don't we function as floats? So why don't I just go wherever the volume is, mm-hmm. right? If it's busy in fast track, for sure, I'll stay in fast track. I'll see the patients in fast track. But if it's busier on the main side, then I go over to the main side. And I think they appreciate that and have seen over the latter, uh, you know, year or so of my career that uh, it really does help and that PAs can see more complicated patients and they appreciate that. Um, at the Toronto General, it's a bit different. Uh, and so over there in the RAS area, it's typically a little bit less uh, acuity. Uh, however, you get the odd patients who are transplant patients or, uh, you know, medical oncology patients who maybe look well and then get triaged really into the not. fast track area. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the volume there is mainly on the acute side. And so we spend a lot of time there. And so ultimately what happens to answer your question, it's a long kind of way to answer your question, uh, <laughs> is that we review patients with in the area where the physicians who we work are are in. 
So I can review patients with different people on my shift, Excellent. which is great, Excellent. right? And so that way, you know, if I have a patient on the acute side, I don't want to, you know, review it with someone on fast track. And then when they're going home, they forget about them right. or whatever. So I try to keep it so that we have patients on, we're reviewing patients on the side that the patient is on. So you also spend a decent amount of time back at McMaster. Yes, my non-clinical passions, <laughs> I guess still somewhat clinical, are um, definitely, I, I have a passion of health policy, public health, and uh, more importantly, teaching. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I love to teach. I think that's the best way to spread the message of PAs is through teaching the future yeah. generations of PAs. Uh, and I think to have a hand in that is is definitely uh, quite unique and uh, very rewarding. Uh, also, I think through teaching, I also teach myself, right? Mm-hmm, and so I, I learn a lot from my students, which is great. Keeps me on my toes, makes me mm-hmm. read things that I maybe wouldn't have read up on if I wasn't teaching, uh, which is wonderful. So at McMaster right now, I spend a lot of time kind of uh, with the IER sessions. So for people that don't know, that's our kind of clinical reasoning class. So it stands for Interviewing, Examining, Reasoning, uh, where it's actually probably one of my favorite courses where you take the knowledge that they've learned in the medical foundations portion of the program and you translate it into what do we do when we actually have a patient in front Mm -hmm. of us, right? Because it's easy to read about chest pain and MIs, but once you have to actually reason through that when a patient's sitting in front of you is a totally different ballgame. Right. Especially when they also have all diabetes and they've got all these comorbid conditions, right? Exactly. Absolutely. And so right now I spent the, the majority of the time doing clinical reasoning in the latter portion of the first year of the program. So that consists of uh, the neurology units, uh, the oncology unit, and the MSK uh, musculoskeletal unit, uh, which is great because by that point, they've kind of built up a ton of knowledge. And it's really when a lot of the reasoning is happening, right? You have to think of broad differentials. It's right before their clerkship and clinical year. uh, So you can push the students a little bit more into thinking about, you know, what would you do if this patient was sitting in front of you in clinic? Whereas in the beginning of the the year, it's not... uh, Sort of basic physical exam skills. Exactly. Exactly. Where you're teaching them, you know, how how to auscultate a lung, etc. So I, I do that. And I also... Uh, you know, do some large group sessions every once in a while about uh, kind of career-related things. And I also spend a decent amount of time in the simulation program, uh, which I really enjoy as well. Wow. You're busy. Uh, I don't know about that. <laughs> I'm trying to keep myself occupied. I would definitely say you're busy, for sure. Um, so tell us a little bit more about your interest in, like, advocacy and public health and your other sort of clinical interests. Yeah, I mean, I, I think... Uh, I've always been interested in public health at at UHN. I I do help a lot in our quality improvement committees. Uh, I think, you know, as clinicians, we touch the life of one person at a time. But through public health initiatives, you can change the lives of thousands of people, uh, which is why I'm genuinely interested in it. And which is also another reason why I think PAs are are great in that uh, we can help meet a lot of the health force needs of our province and our country uh, and address some of the issues that we're facing, such as high costs for care, uh, high wait times, etc. So I think kind of PAs, health policy, public health go hand in hand. Uh, And so that's why I've started to do a lot of health advocacy related work through CAPA um, to spread awareness about PAs uh, in the province. You know, a lot of the work that we've done is we've created, again, with the help of Denise and Anne, they, you know, 
kind of spearheaded this uh, integration networks. Uh, so I was leading the Toronto West uh, integration group. You know, the problem with this is that a lot of the times, even though you may be very interested in health advocacy, some of our some of your colleagues may not be right. as interested, or even if they're interested, their schedules might be conflicting with the meetings. Uh, so it's hard to just get people together to come right. up with a solid plan. Um, and so just for others, so Denise O'Leary is the chapter president for Ontario, mm-hmm. and Anne Ding is the new, who we just interviewed recently, yeah. is the new... Um, VP of CAPA, and they uh, spearheaded, they, so they divided all the Ontario areas into groups and divide, yeah. and assigned a leader to each group, and you are the leader of which one? The Toronto West. Toronto West. Group. And so you uh, organize on like a quarterly basis. We try to. Others, yeah. roughly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and so at our, you know, at our first few meetings, it ended up being a lot of the UHNPAs, and we also have a UHNPA committee as well. So it was kind of a repeat of those meetings. Okay. Um, what I think is actually even a, a, almost probably a more effective initiative is now they've implemented these uh, specialty-based groups. Mm-hmm. So now you have groups for emergency medicine PAs in right. Ontario, family medicine PAs in Ontario, orthopedic PAs in Ontario. And I think that way you can actually network with a lot mm-hmm. of people in your group about conferences, uh, about uh, you know issues that people are facing, medical directives, and it's a nice hub for a lot of PAs to be in touch with one another. Right. Yeah, that's it's a really great initiative. And is are you organizing CME with your group as well, or is it typically more of a networking meeting? So we have done one CME event at the Toronto West Group. Uh, we had a sponsored event, I think probably six months ago. Uh, it was a dinner. We all went out. It was great. We all networked, and also there was a talk on alpha one antitrypsin deficiency, which was uh, very useful, I think, for the primary care PAs uh, in terms of eMERGE PAs, less uh, not less useful, but mm-hmm. still a good opportunity to hear about something that we probably have forgotten about, uh, which I appreciated. <laughs> great, great, good. <laughs> so you, with your new election to VP of the Ontario chapter, what are going to be some of your priorities or goals in this new role of yours? Yeah, so... I mean, again, I'm very honored uh, to, to be elected as the VP chapter uh, vice president. Um, I kind of took this role on because, again, I, I want to be more involved at the CAPA level uh, to try to make a difference for the PAs who are who are working in Ontario. I think the VP role is hopefully a good starting point to kind of get mm-hmm. a get a feel of what it is that CAPA does and what's going on in, at the provincial level to start. Um, I think in Ontario, we're at a very critical time um but i think it's a good time i I think it looks like uh it looks quite optimistic i would have to say although i am an optimist (laughs) Uh, i think i think ontario has clearly committed to the pa profession uh the fact that they've continued with the career start program um is a good sign um the fact that they're continuing to speak with cap about how to address some of the ongoing issues that we're facing is great um, I think we still have to try to advocate for our profession on uh, things such as regulation, funding, um, as well as, uh, I guess, kind of hand in hand with funding is kind of the job market for PAs and even addressing things like the Career Start program. Uh, specifically, I mean, the good news is the Minister of Health has made an announcement about a month ago about PA regulation. And so they've kind of you know, spoken with the CPSO and I guess in a way directed the CPSO to take a stronger look at PA regulation. 
because for those who don't know, PAs applied for regulation in 2012. Uh, the way that that happens is we go through something called HPRAC, which is the Health Professions Regulatory Advisory Committee, I think, of, of Ontario, where they talk to all of the different stakeholders about regulating a certain profession. They get their opinions and then make a recommendation to the minister who then considers that recommendation. At that time, their recommendation was that PAs do not meet the risk of harm for regulation, essentially saying that what's happening right now is working, despite what a lot of those stakeholders said prior to that kind of uh, analysis where they, you know, a lot of the times questioned the safety of the PA's work. And so the PA community, I think, was a bit distraught when that happened. Mm -hmm. But I think this is good news because there was a recommendation to at least start with the registry, which never happened uh, mm -hmm. at the CPSO level, uh, which is the College of Physicians and Surgeons of Ontario. Uh, and so now the minister has said, you know, we need to consider PA regulation and has now kind of opened that dialogue more formally with the CPSO. Uh, hard to know, again, what this means, uh, but I think that it it's kind of started the conversation and hopefully in the next few months we'll have a better idea of what that means. Whether it means let's at least start this registry that was recommended a few years mm -hmm. ago and that we, we've heard nothing about, or whether it means something more, it's unclear at this point. Okay. Okay. Have they also put out uh, potential funding models? I mean, could you, did they speak to that at all or that had, that wasn't addressed? Uh, so, I mean, with regards to PA funding in Ontario, there are different groups that are addressing it. There's a PA kind of advisory committee that's been formed by the Ministry of Health that both Denise, myself, PA educators, et cetera, are on. Uh, and so this committee was kind of created to create uh, both kind of an integration guide for PAs with the current legislation, uh, but also on their agenda is funding. So they have open dialogue for funding, which is definitely still an issue. I think the ministry recognizes now that there's an issue. Uh, and I think hopefully over the few coming months and years, we'll be able to work to hopefully try to think of a sustainable model for PAs. As a lot of people know, in Ontario especially, but typically in government, things take a long, long time. So it's hard to know how many roadblocks we're going to face. But I think the fact that we're having this open dialogue is uh, is a very good start. It's it seems... a big improvement from, yeah. from prior exactly. years. <laughs> because at least it feels like they're acknowledging that we're here to stay, we're needed, and we have issues that have to be addressed. Yeah. I mean, and that none of those things were... A year ago, none of those things were no, there. <laughs> exactly. And so I think we've made, a, there's been a lot of great announcements. I, I think another thing that we have to uh, look at are, are the unions. Mm, and I think... That's uh, the next question yeah. I have for you. Yeah. <laughs> so, so it'll be interesting to see what happens with that. So bring, bring people up to speed on where we are with the unions, because we've had a couple issues happening with that. Yeah. In Ontario, the <clears throat> union uh, thing is... Sort of peaking it. So, I mean, I'm still, I, I don't want to give you any false information. I'll give you as much as I know about unions. Um, I think over, again, the next few weeks and probably um, after the Kappa conference, we'll have a lot more information, hopefully. But the, the issue essentially is that uh, in Ontario, a lot of hospitals have different unions that are responsible for a lot of the work that's done by the employees within those hospitals. Uh, and so I guess the Ottawa group of PAs, to my understanding, uh, was called one day and told that they were uh, being asked to join one of the unions in their hospital known as OPSU, uh, which also unionizes other healthcare workers, I believe, like physiotherapists and some of the other allied health uh, uh, team. 
as well as uh, workers such as, you know, patient care assistants, porters, etc. Uh, and so the PA group at that time did not think that uh, it would be uh, in their best interest to be unionized. They brought this forward to Kappa. And over the last few years, there's been a kind of a legal battle with this union to try to show that PAs actually do not meet the definition of paramedical services. So essentially what this union was trying to do is saying that PAs, as physician assistants, we fall under the umbrella of paramedical services uh, in their collective agreement for paramedical services in that union. And so Kappa tried to, you know, actually got a lot of legal opinions. We tried to fight this. And uh, so essentially, because we're, we're saying we're not paramedical, we're actually medical. Medical, correct. Right. Yeah. And so this went to a judicial review and uh, there was an arbitrator who looked at, I guess, the first review, which said that we did fall under the definition and actually said that, you know, this seems like it was legitimate. And they agreed that mm -hmm. we also still fell under the paramedical services definition, which is quite frustrating. And so now we're kind of in a in the state where we don't know what what's going to happen mm. you know whether we're going to have to be unionized under opsu and we're going to have to just work with opsu in these different hospitals that have opsu unions uh is unknown whether other questions that are being asked are you know should we be unionizing our group mm -hmm. um if we're going to be forced to be unionized would it be better to have our own union which right. is what they've done in manitoba correct so that's that's an interesting question i think that'll be at least in Ontario, that'll be sort of the question. I think it's the question me, of the hour. something of yeah. something that'll be taking up a lot of the conversation in the next year or two is exactly if we're going to be forced to join unions, perhaps we should just have our own. Yeah, I guess the the other the other question is is there is there anything else that we can do aside from that? You know, I, I think the situation in Manitoba is a little bit different. Ontario it has a lot more. Not to say it's complicated or more complicated. I'm sure they have their own struggles in Manitoba as well. But, you know, in Manitoba, PAs are hired through the ministry and the, the government. They're all yeah, government they're employees. And they're regulated. Yes. Correct. <laughs> yes. It's quite frustrating. Um, but in Ontario, we are hired through a whole array of different things. Different hospitals have different unions. Yeah. Uh, so to even to go about creating our union, it's a whole different issue in Ontario because unions don't work the same way when we're all employed through a different employer. Uh, so these are all, again, conversations that we're going to be having over the coming years. Uh, all of these, I think, are very closely intertwined. So the idea of funding with unions, with regulation, all go hand in hand. Yeah. And unfortunately, I think all of these are going to happen at different times. Uh, right. So how much we're going to be able to really change things, I'm not sure. But all we can really try to do is to make sure whenever things are falling into place that we give our input and make sure that it happens in the best way possible. So for those, um, <clears throat> because I have noticed, I have noticed a few people on uh, the Ontario Facebook group writing some concerns over their hospital, talking about unions, like not uh, separate from Ottawa, new ones. Is there is there any support that Kappa can give, even just guidance? Like, I mean, should they be contacting you directly, letting you know about these things? Yeah, we always want to help as many of our members as, as we possibly can. And the only way that we can help is by being informed. We also still have a lot of questions that we're looking into answering. Right. But definitely, I would recommend that those members who are concerned co contact us and, and let us know about what's 
what's happening because the more open we are and the more open the dialogue is between our members and, and Kappa, uh, the more we'll be able to kind of offer assistance and, and look into things. So for sure, I, I would recommend that they that they contact. So they can contact myself, they can contact, I'm sure, Natalie. But again, for all of our Kappa members, I mean, we're always there to, to help. And, and even if we don't know the answers, we'll definitely try to find the answers. Right. Or at least be supportive. <laughs> yes. At least, exactly. Exactly. What is it, what do you, I mean, you're incoming, so sometimes it's hard to say, but what is it that you believe you need from Kappa members in order to effectively do your job? I mean, we already mentioned communication. Yeah. So that, that piece is there is getting the feedback to you. Is there anything else that you can... What would imagine you like from, yeah i mean I, i'm a firm believer of you know your career is what you make it to be um to a certain extent i mean i i do know of great pas who've lost their jobs and you know have have struggled in the current situation as well so that's not to say that if you don't have a job or if things are not working out you're not doing enough um but i, I want to say that i think especially when the pa community is so small mm-hmm. uh any kind of advocacy that PAs can do goes a long way. Mm-hmm. So I would encourage our members, again, we send out numerous emails to, you know, contact your MPP, to come out to the advocacy events, to go to the networking groups. Um, I would encourage people to do as much of that as they possibly can. Uh, you know, my own personal opinion, again, is that I find a lot of the time people get involved in advocacy and have very strong opinions when things are not going their way. So people seem to get involved whenever they need help, but I would say it's more, we should be focusing on the prevention side of Mm -hmm. trying to advocate for things and to do things prior to things going wrong. Uh, So I would encourage people to contact their MPPs, to stay very vocal about the PA profession, try to advocate as much as they can, if you have ideas about funding, regulation, if you have knowledge about unions, uh, I, I would love to hear about it. Okay. Um, you know, again, with the funding model, there's we're, we're, there's hundreds of different funding models in Ontario. And maybe there's ideas that other PAs have that I haven't heard of or that, you know, other capital leaders haven't heard of. So if you have an idea about a, a funding model that you think would work for PAs in the setting that you're in, I would love to hear about it. Because then if I know about it, I can hopefully take it to the different stakeholders and, and get their opinions on it as well. Uh, so definitely that would be kind of my feedback to the membership. Okay, that's actually great feedback to hear. Prevention. 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 That's yeah. the key. <laughs> don't just complain, but get involved. <laughs> get involved. And, and even if you're not, you don't have something to complain about, but you just have ideas. You just yeah. have some input, whether that goes anywhere or not. For sure, because we all have different backgrounds, right. right? Again, that's the beauty of the PA profession. We all have different experiences prior to being in the PA program, and, and someone's experience may be quite valuable uh, in times like these. Yeah, absolutely. Wonderful. That's great. Any other any other questions that you have, Rachel? No. Any other th- anything else you want to add, Sayed? Uh, no, again, I'd, I'd like to just uh, thank you guys for having me on the podcast and uh, it's been a pleasure. And again, it's it's great to see the Canadian PA movement. You know, I think in the US, there's a lot of, you know, PAs who are active on social media and on podcasts, but we don't have that here in Canada. So to see you guys uh, in Canada doing this, it, it's a it's a pleasure. Well, thank you for thank the you. encouragement. Yes. Thank yeah, you very we'll much. Keep it up. Keep it up. All right. <laughs> Thanks.
Meet the PA's podcast is sponsored by pahelpers.ca, where you can find all your Canadian exam prep needs. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit us at mtppodcast.com. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe, and we would love your feedback.